Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I am Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Urashami. Um, some program notes. We did not do a show last week as I and many other Michiganders were without power for a couple of days as storms raged through our state. And next week and perhaps the week after, we will not have shows as I will be away from the office and hopefully getting a chance to spend some time with my family, God willing. So I want to begin our discussion today by reading really an excellent letter to the editor from a, a longtime friend and client, Greg Cunningham. Greg is the director of the pro-life group Center for Bioethical Reform or CBR. Uh, we've won many, many very good cases on his behalf uh, over the years. Um, Greg is a, he's a very smart guy. He has his law degree. He is a retired Air Force colonel, and he actually served in the Pennsylvania legislature for a period of time. So he was responding to, I, I believe, was an op-ed that was in, I'm, I'm not even certain what the paper was, um, but this is what he wrote. And I, anyway, I, I found it interesting enough that I wanted to uh, read it in full here, and, uh, and I got his permission to do so as, as well. And this is a letter to the editor. And he said, in considering the Saturday, August 14, 2021 column titled, if you skip the vaccine, it is my damn business, end quote, it may prove useful to provide some relevant context. The Centers for Disease Control lists influenza as a contagious respiratory infection, which can lead to serious illness and death. CDC estimates that during calendar years 2017 to 2018, in the U.S. alone, influenza caused 45 million symptomatic respiratory infections, 21 million of those illnesses were serious enough to require medical care, 810,000 were sufficiently severe to result in hospitalization, and 61,000 of those infections proved fatal. Flu isn't COVID. But it, it, but it is nonetheless a highly contagious respiratory infection, which can and does result in tens of thousands of deaths every year. Why isn't the despotic left demanding to know the vaccination status of those suspected of dodging flu shots? Why aren't we mandating masks for sufferers, sufferers of, the, of the tens of millions of common colds, which can and do evolve into millions of cases of influenza? Prudence dictates sensible precautions, but who decides what's sensible and where does this end? When, for instance, will Big Pharma and its government enablers produce an adequately tested, ethically sourced vaccine? The North Carolina Department of Health and Services lists 16 different common contagious respiratory infections. It adds seven, which are somewhat less common, but arguably more lethal. In addition to those pathological perils, more arguably bioengineered spike proteins await us. Will we be threatened with endless rounds of shutdowns, school closures, denials of access and vaccine mask mandates each time a new COVID variant mutates into prominence? Political conservatives say, quote, I'll live my life and you live yours, end quote. Political progressives say, quote, I'll live my life and I'll live yours too, end quote. The silver lining to this relentless public health hysteria may be its tendency to provide an important Pearl Harbor moment for the, som for the somnolent conservatives and complacent swing voters who have underestimated danger 
inherent in the left's heretofore surreptitious contempt for ordered liberties. That disdain worked when carefully concealed by moderates who once knew better than to tip the hands they are now overplaying. The polls will soon reopen. Let the accounting, accounting begin. Regards, Greg Cunningham. You know, my, my favorite part of this article, I mean, really, he makes uh, obviously some tr tremendously good points, right? Wh at what point do we decide, you know, is the, is the yearly influenza, is it, is it serious enough that we're going to mandate masks, mandate vaccines, or when's the next COVID variant? We know, already know there's a Delta variant. I've heard there's other variants that are working their way through. Is this endless, you know, control over our lives? You know, is, is, have we set the stage for that? Is this our Pearl Harbor moment where we're actually going to stand up and start fighting back? I think we're at the point now where it's going to require civil disobedience, right? I love this line where he says, you know, what, what conservatives say, I'll live my life and you live yours. And what do the progressives say? I'll live my life and I'll live yours too, which is exactly what they're, what they're doing through all these, uh, these COVID restrictions. And they're, boy, they're rearing their ugly head again and uh, to an exponent because now we added to this mix the mandatory vaccines. We're seeing it in workplaces. We're seeing it in schools, universities. And it's what, you know, the direction we're going here is going to, I don't know, it's going to take, you know, the Rosa Parks moments, right? Where we just say, look, I'm not giving up my seat on the bus. I'm not taking your vaccine. I'm not going to wear your mask. And you know what? I guess I'm going to have to walk out of my employment myself and, you know, five, six, 10, 100 other people. And you've got help wanted signs all over the place, right? Let's see how you handle that now with all, everybody walking out. I, it's going to take some sort of civil disobedience, I think, or as you know, as Greg points out, assuming we can trust the elections, you know, let the accounting begin. Let's, I pray that the midterm elections coming up will be a, will be a, a watershed moment. Um, and and it, I mean, it'll be a watershed moment, I think, either way, because if we, if there isn't an overwhelming reaction and rejection of this left-wing political, you know, progressive, left-wing progressive political movement, then, you know, Sad to say, um, I'm not. I'm not sure where we go from there. But David, welcome. Your thoughts on uh, on Greg's uh, letter and, and obviously all these uh, COVID mandates, which we continue to talk about because we're you know we're heavily involved in litigation. Second Circuit, the Sixth Circuit, the and uh, the Third Circuit. I mean, we're we're all across the uh, the country trying to fight this tyranny. Yeah, and you know, it, Greg's letter is excellent, as you point out, and it is patently so. Um, it, it, it raises literally a plethora of profoundly important issues to think about and to discuss without a lot of the political or ideological hyperbole. And you and I on this podcast and a lot of times off the podcast have those kinds of discussions. And, and as much as we agree, we can disagree. Um, not at the central core principles, but certainly at the margins. And reasonable men can disagree, men and women, of course, but um, on, on matters where judgment is, is, is involved. For example, the idea that I live my life and you live yours versus I live my life and I live yours um, as an ideological position, i.e. the libertarian against the progressive tyranny, because that's what it leads to. But, but libertarianism, I live my life and you live yours, leads to nihilism as well. Libertarianism, 
i.e. no government and in its absolute form becomes as tyrannical as progressive tyranny because you can't have libertarianism. You can't have no government. We are created by our creator, by God, to exist as peoples in nations. Um, it sets that out in the Bible, 70 nations. And we have the whole story of the Tower of Babel, what we call Migdal Bovel. And um, those distinctions in peoples are important because it is peoples that agree upon a government and then empower the government with certain authority over their lives. Now, with we know that that we don't all live by the principle, I live mine and you live yours. For example, um, someone might like to drink and someone might like to drive, and then a third person might like to drink and drive, but we know that can hurt other people. It does. And so we balance the risks of imposing restrictions, the risk benefit analysis, and we say over a certain limits, you can't drive. And no reasonable person argues that the state that government doesn't have the proper role in managing that conduct. But the question of COVID-19 is, is of a different sort. Now, the progressives will tell you, yes, you can live yours, but just like drunken driving, you can't go out and infect people. Well, of course, if that's what they were really protecting against, there might be an argument, but that's not just what they're protecting against because they're telling us that everybody with vaccines, it's very rare to have a breakthrough, but we find that there are a fair number of breakthroughs. The data on that is still wide open. Um, but they say, but these people can infect other people. So everybody must wear a mask. Well, the other people could decide to stay home or get a, a vaccine or take the risk themselves as well. It's not like drunken driving um, where the other person is entirely innocent. Um, but even more to the point, when Rob, when Rob, when you and I first started litigating, and we see it now in the Second Circuit, the principle driving the fear of the judges who were simply saying, look, this is a crazy crisis. There's a compelling state interest. No one disagrees. And we can't be in the position of becoming health experts and bureaucrats. We turn this over to the bureaucrats. Out of fear, they tore up the Constitution. And they said, this is a crisis, we'll get through it, and then things can go back to normal. But now what have we learned? As Greg points out in this letter, we have other diseases that are there and mutating every year. Influenza, when I get my annual influenza shot, which has been well-tested is safe, the fact is, is that um, I get immunity against those kinds of influenza viruses, but it mutates radically every year. And they have to guess at what they see emerging to figure out what the cocktail of influenza vaccines are required for this particular year. COVID-19 is not going away, not based upon what we see, and now maybe it does, but this isn't like smallpox. It's not like um, other viruses and diseases that we have 
successfully successfully eliminated with one-shot vaccines when we're children. This is the kind of virus that mutates, and it mutates extremely efficiently, as we see with Delta. Now, do people think that Delta is going to be the last mutation? That makes absolutely zero sense biologically. So what it means is the judges in the Second Circuit, for example, that's New York, where we sued Cuomo and de Blasio, we have two cases where the Second Circuit and a district court judge have been sitting on our cases, ready for their decision about whether our cases go forward or not, and doing nothing. Why? Because they were convinced that we'd get over this hump and that if they waited long enough, they could just rule everything is moot. There's no real damage here. We're back to normal. We're not going back to normal. The left has taken power. It's not going to give it up. And it's certainly not going to give it up because there's a continuing threat. So now the question is, are we going to live with restrictions on indoor gathering, on outdoor gathering, with masks and forced vaccines? We have, you know, the, the case for forced vaccines has been going on since Jacobson, right? Since the early 20th century. 1905, yeah. Yeah. And states have done that, right? They still require our children to be vaccinated if they're going to go to school, that kind of thing. But it's not simply an argument about a one-time crisis that's going away. And so now the idea that I live my life, you live yours, not translated as kind of an authoritarian libertarianism where everyone is his own government, now it's translated into, look, government is not instituted to impose restrictions ad infinitum, at least not our government, right? There's no, I'll get to that later when we talk about, about the war in Afghanistan. Our government has a constitutional framework that it's not permitted to tread upon. And there are guidelines that the courts have established over the years that it has to live by the government, the federal government and the states. It's simply not capable, and it's legally, properly speaking, of imposing these kinds of burdens on our civil liberties ad infinitum. And if it does, then it has simply rewritten the Constitution. As adults, we have to take our own risk-benefit analysis, make our own risk-benefit analysis. And, and people should go into that wide-eyed and understanding with proper disclosures. I'll conclude by saying this, that if we are going to say, well, um, government can still make those decisions. And what we have to do is change the government representatives to um, make that change. I'm going to come right back to what I say over and over again. If the somber conservatives, as Greg, I thought, called them, um, you know, the quiet conservatives, the, 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 the folks who are asleep at the wheel, as it were, or simply saying, there's nothing I can do. Um, they have to realize, as far as I'm concerned, that if they're relying on the ballot box, 
the likelihood of that being successful in the long term is slim. Now, having said that, and we've talked about this, that we're in a non-kinetic civil war, that if something doesn't change, it's invariably going to go to a kinetic civil war because there's enough people who simply won't live that way. God forbid, it should never happen. But I will say this, a discussion that Rob and I had just this past week, and I think Rob was correct, when um, I make this argument, one of the things that I fail to consider is the fact that the progressives, the Democrats, the liberals, aren't an, a homogenous, well-organized group any more than our side is. And the fact is, is that if they were, given the power that they currently have in our culture and the power they showed they had in corrupting the last election, not by funky voting machines and stealing votes, literally, which they very well could have done. I've not seen that evidence expressly. I've seen a lot of smoke, which could have led a rational person to fire, but I haven't seen the evidence. But what they did do is they took over the narrative by attacking Trump as a treasonous president, impeaching him twice, doing what they've done um, in controlling the media and the narrative, the, the deep state that was constantly leaking and, and fighting Trump at every that was the stealing of the election. And if they're capable of replicating that, then there's no future elections. But I can't make the mistake that I was making when I was having this discussion with you, Rob, this week, which is they're well organized and, and capable. You know, maybe they're not, and maybe they will fail, and maybe the, the quiet conservatives will rise up and, and change the government through the vote. Yeah, a couple of follow-up comments before we switch gears to, to something uh, <laughs> completely different. Um, one is, you know, when we when my understanding, my my Christian understanding of freedom, and and this is where you know George Washington said in famously in his farewell address, uh, farewell address, that religion and morality the indispensable supports of our political success. So you're making the point about libertarians. I, I'm, I'm not. I don't put myself in the camp of a libertarian because libertarians are essentially everything is everything goes right, right. without these guiding principles, these Judeo-Christian principles that should guide freedom. Because from my perspective, freedom is the freedom to do that which you ought to do, right? And so you have these principles that guide that. Otherwise, you have you know the libertarian side of it. You have its you have its own sense of tyranny as you do with these you know on these progressives on the on the left as well. And, uh, and we know, you know, we know famously has been said, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that's, and that's, uh, that's where we are. Regarding your point about that, and it was a point that we, we were discussing earlier this week, you know, Sun Tzu famously said, know your enemy. And, and you never want to underestimate your enemy. But we, we tend to, I think, overestimate the enemy in some respects. We look at him as this, you know, sort of being this monolithic giant. And they're not. You know, I, I read a very interesting book on the... Um, biography of uh, Thurgood Marshall. And what was evident in that book is Thurgood Marshall obviously had a big role to play in, in the civil rights movement and so forth. There was a lot of disputes between the Martin Luther King camp and the Thurgood Marshall camp, whether they should be doing this, this direct action, you know, like the Martin Luther King getting out there and getting arrested and, or should they just work their way through the courts and try to do it more civilly. And so even the whole civil rights movement, even though we look at it as being this monolithic, um, you know, movement on uh, on the on the part of a you know large group of people uh, who are 
mostly good intention, but it wasn't. It's not that case. And I think I think though what the left has is certainly they have the echo chamber of the media. So I think it makes it look like their footprint is bigger than what it truly is. And I think they're all operating on these little sort of smaller tangents, right? But and then these tangents tend to coalesce into things that are that are bigger, right? They want to promote the LGBTQ, you know, WXYZ and all these other issues. But you know, we can do the same. And that's why I think it's important. That we that we attack each one of these little tangents, whether it be at our own school boards, whether it be you know how we spend our money, we you know supporting local businesses or these big you know these big businesses that you know promote this woke culture. And so just, I don't think should be people should be overwhelmed or despaired when you look at this. Say, oh look, they've they've you know they control everything. Well, they just they don't. I mean, I just think we we view them as monolithic. And and part of it was very interesting. I had a very interesting discussion with a. Uh, uh, it was a, it was an opposing counsel of mine in a case that went on bonk to the U.S. Court of Appeals in Ninth Circuit, which means the entire court, at least there, they have a quorum of the entire court heard the case. It almost made it up to the Supreme Court. Uh, I sued the city and county of San Francisco. The opposing counsel eventually, he's actually now a federal judge, was appointed by Obama, and we and we actually we kind of got along because he was he was one of these sort of old school liberals. I think he and he I, you know he's starting to have kids and his family's growing, so he's kind of growing a little bit more conservative values. Funny how that ends up. Uh, working out. But we had this discussion and, and he said, you know, the, the, the conservatives think that the left is, you know, is monolithic, that we're always, he said, if anything, we're just the opposite. I mean, it's a bunch of people with a bunch of their own ideas. It's so hard to organize and, and get these people together to do something. It's like herding cats. He was looking at conservatives and saying, conservatives are, are more monolithic and have, have more of a, a, a message that they, they all kind of agree on. Um, and so it was kind of interesting just looking at it from the, uh, from the other perspective. Um, but, so there's, so there's, that's, uh, I, I think it's something to, to bear in mind that this is not, uh, you know, plus they don't have God in their side. I'm sorry. The left, the movement of the left is anti-God, right. And, and with God, all things are possible. And, and, and we, we know that the values that we promote, the J.O. Christian values we promote are the, are the true, the good and the beautiful and the right thing at the end of the day. Um, and you know it's it, it's going to be uh, ugly in these fights, but we have uh, we have truth on our side, right? And before we before we go to uh, Afghanistan, as it were, um, <laughs> uh, the I will say this, and the last point you make, of course, is just absolutely true and doesn't require me to say so. Um, it's self evident, and that is um, there is a God, and um, that God has blessed this country in ways that are unimaginable and um, will continue to do so in ways that are unimaginable. And that will be our saving grace as it were, um, if there is one. But we have to also be honest and say that if you look at what the left calls the arc of history, and of course, progressives want to make history or time the new God, the new transcendent, right? That we're, we're, we're moving toward this universalistic, you know, one world government state, which is really tyranny, their version of utopia, their version of, of um, heaven on earth. And that, of course, is Hegelian, and that's a corrupted thought. Um, but the reality is, if you look at the way the vector, the arc of history, as it were, of Western civilization you see that even though they're disorganized and as disorganized as the other side of the political spectrum, the more conservative side, and maybe even more so, 
Um, the fact is, is they are winning the, the longer battle, at least from a perspective that we can see today. And um, you can see that at the universities, you can see it at the, the elementary and middle level schools, you see it in culture, in music, in theater, in, in literature, um, you see it in many different fora and across many different platforms, social media. Now, um, that being said, again, um, things can change. And we've seen when, when things get to a point of, uh, as it were, no return, um, people do rise up. You see it now with critical race theory and parents and in, 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 in certain school districts. Um, but what you see it in, for example, Virginia and elsewhere, is where the progressives have gotten out front of the masses, and then the masses will rise up. But you don't see parents rising up en masse in California, for example, except in some school districts. Um, we have an example here. Beverly Hills uh, went full on the Beverly Hills Public School for critical race theory. And we're sending little elementary kids in third grade, um, you know, courses about this stuff. And um, a lot of parents protested because you have a lot of parents from Iran and elsewhere, immigrants that know what it's like to grow up in state controlled societies. But it became mostly words. Now there are parents, friends of ours, that have pulled their child out of public school. And they talked with you, Rob, in terms of homeschooling or private Christian school. And because they both work, I think they're opting for the private Christian school. But that's, if there's going to be an answer, for example, for that generation, that would be it. But, but very few are actually making that commitment. I know you told me that homeschooling is exploding and whether it's exploding enough will be a question, but enough said on that. I think, I think, um, the ultimate point is, is that um, while they might not be um, a monolithic, well-organized, well-greased movement, um, they seem to be winning the overarching battle of which way this country is going. I mean, just look around you, right? I mean, who would have thought when I was 30 years old, that the so-called LG alphabet soup thing would be what it is, that um, the um, idea of systemic uh, racism would be where it is, um, that we would be as politicized as we are, where foreign policy becomes um, a matter of open public debate um, with regard to attacking our national security interests. In other words, it used to be where um, politicians had those debates and people had those debates, but politicians didn't go out into a public forum and, and carry on and, and as if what should be private in this country was for the world to discuss. I mean, that's just a small matter, but, but things have changed. No doubt. Got to fight back though, and we're doing that. Yep. Right. Do it in your families first and foremost, right? You mentioned about, you know, the homeschooling. We've been, my wife has been homeschooling our kids for 30 plus years and, and it is growing the homeschooling movement. To me, that's one of the biggest countercultural grassroots movements out there is the homeschooling. And people got very, very frustrated with what the public schools are doing on again, off again, virtual, not virtual. 
Um, and just as, as an aside, and I want to get to the next issue here because we're uh, for time purposes, but I know like uh, uh, one of my uh, daughters teaches at a Catholic school and there's a lot of public school kids that are trying to get into the Catholic schools and there's obviously, you know, capacity limitations and so forth. But a lot of the children, the kids that are coming from the public school that are coming into these, into the Catholic schools, into the parochial, the private schools, often they, and I know in this school, in most schools, they require them to do some testing, pre-testing to see where they grade out for when they come into the school. And almost all the public school kids were grading a year behind, right? They lost an entire school year because of this COVID and how the public schools failed doing that. But these, these Catholic schools, I know the ones around here, they've been able to go, even when they had to do the mask stuff and so forth, they managed to have in-classroom instruction for the vast majority of the time. And it's made a difference with the kids. It makes a huge difference with the kids. And leaving aside all the things we've seen with the suicide and the drug overdose. and I mean, it's just horrific what we're doing to these, uh, to these kids in the, in the name of you know, protecting them from COVID when as a demographic, they almost have you know, very little concern oh. under, under COVID. So, so as not to prevent us from getting to another sub, let yeah. me just say this, you know, just the idea of mask wearing. So um, someone made the point to us that um, they're finding that children, in fact, my friends who took their child out of public school um, made the point that they're finding that children who were born, those early young ones, toddlers that lived this past year and a half with people wearing masks, their IQ levels have dropped precipitously. Now, I haven't confirmed that, but it, it's it's clear. My little grandson, who was just born three months ago, he's now beginning to smile and move his mouth. But you see him watching his Zadie, his grandfather, doing it. And he's learning from me when I'm always smiling or his bubby, his grandmother is always smiling or his mother or father. That's how children learn. They watch faces. They learn what expressions are and they mimic them because they see that when I seem happy, my face is tied to that. It's not a conscious thing. It's a subconscious learning process. And when you cover people's face, you know, I don't hear so well. So if I don't see people's mouths moving, it's very difficult. And talk about frustration. And as trial lawyers, we naturally read body language. And if you're a good trial lawyer, you've learned to read microfacial expressions. It's things that most people don't recognize. I look for these all the time when I'm talking to people. Do they understand what I say? One of the reasons I like Zoom rather than conference calls, and I am, I require Zoom most times, is I want to see if people are hearing and understanding. And I can only do that if I can see their face. If they're like this, I can't tell that much. Those are the problems that we've imposed. That cost, and is Fauci doing the cost-benefit analysis on what it's doing to our little children? No, because he's not a pediatrician. He's not a child psychologist. He has no clue about that. All he knows is public policy, a little science relating to viruses. That's it. All right, so we are getting close to running out of time here, but I wanna switch gears in, in a big way and discuss an issue that is very much on the front pages today and unfortunately maybe for some time, and that's this Afghanistan fiasco. 
Uh, this certainly looks like Biden's Saigon moment, as we now have burned into our collective memories the images of the, you know, these aircraft attempting to take off with people literally hanging onto, you know, the aircraft's fuselage and wings and so forth. It's reminiscent, certainly from a political perspective, of the famous photo of helicopters taking off during the fall of Saigon. Um, this botched American exodus has no doubt emboldened the Taliban, a terrorist group, and other terrorist groups as well. As, as some of you may know, David is, is an expert on the Middle East and terrorism and Sharia. In fact, that's how we first uh, connected back in 2008, I think was the time frame. We challenged the, uh, the huge George W. Bush bailout, the so-called TARP money that was, uh, that was spent, particularly as it related to the billions of dollars given to AIG. AIG, which is the world's leader in Sharia compliant financing. So as a result of that bailout, billions of dollars of our tax money was funding Sharia and consequently it was funding terrorism. Now, we won a very important first round in that federal court case, and it opened the door to discovery where we were able to trace millions of tax dollars going to fund Sharia projects in violation of the Establishment Clause. But politics played a large role in this case, and we ultimately lost on the final decision. Now, we're going to have to do an entirely separate podcast on that case someday because it's very, very interesting. If you remember, David, we were taking the the deposition of the treasury official who was responsible for that top program, we were at a conference table with probably 30 lawyers from the Department of Justice on the other side. I remember I had a stack and I'm holding up a, my fingers for those just listening to the podcast were about an inch thick, an inch thick of, of business cards from all the lawyers that were uh, in on that litigation on the deposition of that, that treasury official. Um, so yeah, so that we're going to have to cover that in, in another case, another podcast or two, um, altogether, it's a very, very interesting case. But today we're going to discuss Afghanistan, right? Because that's that's on the front pages, you know. And, and to me, the question is, you know, do you think? And you know, there, there's a, there's a lot to discuss about this, about whether our mission there was appropriate or not. And you know, let me, Andy McCarthy, our good friend Andy McCarthy, we mentioned him many times. He wrote an article back in July, July 13th, titled "Afghanistan Exit But No Strategy." And he, you know, he posed this, this question. I think to me, this is really, at the end of the day, the very important question when you're looking at it from a, from a national security perspective, right? That's why we employ our militaries for, for national security. And, and I want to also just bear in mind, you know, Clausewitz, the famous uh, his, our historian of war, and, and, you know, he famously said that war is a continuation of politics by other means. Our military is always the best trained and best prepared to do the military part of it. The problem is the political part of it is what typically falls apart. And that's what we've, we've seen in Afghanistan, in, in my view. But he posed it this way. How do we ensure that the ruling Afghan regime does not permit its territory to be a launch pad for jihadist attacks on the United States, including our, in, our in, interests, installations, and allies in the region and beyond? And, and the, to me, that's, you know, if we do we have a national security interest in Afghanistan? I, I certainly think we do. And I think it's far greater than anything we had in Iraq at any time. Afghanistan, you look at the geography and the, and the land, you know, where it's low, it's landlocked. And uh, it, it's become the training base, the place where terrorists, Al-Qaeda, can organize, can train, and can launch attacks against United States interests, whether it's against the USS Cole, you know, it's a ship that's 
that's uh, you know that's that's uh, anchored somewhere out close in the Middle East, or whether it's on our homeland, as they as we saw in uh, in 9/11, or against an embassy in, in one of these other you know places in the far reaches of the world. I, I just I can't see how this is not emboldened, you know, has not emboldened the Al Qaeda and and the terrorists. And, and you know, I think Trump did an incredible job. And you just think about it. I mean, just look with your eyes. We saw, and it was an absolute decrease of of terrorist attacks after he snuffed out ISIS and really dis- destroyed the caliphate. I think it just I think it just destroyed their will to continue on. And now you hear. You have, you know, the Taliban raising their flags over U.S. embassy and seeing us fleeing, uh, you know, from this country. I mean, my goodness, what are the what are the national security implications of this, David? Well, you know, um, our good friend Andy also wrote a piece today, um, and at at the online um, paper, The Hill, thehill.com entitled 30 Years Later, Still Willfully Blind to Sharia Supremacy. And this, by the way, that's a nod to, he has a book called Willful Blindness. Right. Very good book about, because Andy's been heavily involved in, in as a, when he was an uh, assistant U.S. attorney in New York, Southern District of New York, prosecuting the blind shake and other major terrorist cells. So he has firsthand knowledge and inside knowledge of Sharia and terrorism and its relationship and connection. So the title of that is kind of a nod to his book, Willful, Willful Blindness. Good, David. Right. Andy was the one who prosecuted successfully the blind shake for the first World Trade Center bombing and then subsequently for conspiracies while in jail with his jihadist outside to blow up New York landmarks. Um, Andy is the first to admit that back then in the 90s, um, that he and others thought that this was a criminal justice matter and that these people were like other criminals, opportunists. But he came to understand the doctrine after prosecuting them, the doctrine that underscores the global jihad. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Sunni Muslim, a Shia Muslim, a Pakistani, a Filipino, a Uyghur in China, from anywhere in the world, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, the fundamental doctrine of Sharia, Islamic law, is that Islamic law must dominate the world, must be the guiding legal doctrine. And there should be one nation under Sharia. And that um, the effort to get there is threefold. One, you try to persuade your enemies, your infidel enemies, Two, uh, if you can't persuade them, then you attempt to subjugate them if they live within your country through taxation and and, uh, subordinate positions, a kind of um, dimitude, they call it. Um, And third, if they're not willing to convert and be good Muslims, if they're not willing to live in a subjugated state, death, jihad. That's the fundamental doctrine. That hasn't changed from the time of Muhammad's movement to take over the Arabian Peninsula and, and, and forward. There have been times when Islam and its jihadists have been quiescent because of political realities, but it's never because they've changed the doctrine. And so what Andy's point is, is that the politicians who thought originally 
that they were going to do nation building either in Iraq or Afghanistan and change this religion are simply wrong. The George Bush doctrine that asserted all men everywhere at all times simply want liberty and opportunity, i.e. the democracy and free markets. That's not true. A huge number of Muslims around the globe want the imposition of Sharia and subservience to Allah. That's what they want. And they don't just want it for themselves and their children. They want it for the rest of us. That's the doctrine. If the doctrine were that, that Sharia would simply be imposed on those people who want it, fine, have it. But that's, that's not their doctrine. And that's why they, they have the capability and they utilize the capability for global jihad. That being said, the idea that you were going to negotiate some kind of peace with the Taliban or some kind of peaceful resolution um, is just an absurdity because that's not their doctrine. You know, Rob, you mentioned Clausewitz, and I had a, um, a close involvement with a, a colonel involved, the Air Force colonel involved in military intelligence for years. And he wrote um, many essays on, and talked with me at length about Clausewitz. Uh, in addition to saying what war is as a political matter, uh, he made um, the point that war is, quote, an active force to compel our enemy to do our will. And further, quote, the total means at his disposal and the strength of the will determines the outcome. In other words, the winner of a war has to have two components has to have capability or opportunity, and he has to have the will. Mm -hmm. The United States, as we know, has overwhelming capability, but we don't have the political will to fight any kind of long war as a result of the Vietnam debacle, or maybe even anyway. Mm -hmm. War is to be fought at least by free nations to get in, do the job, and get out. Now, what we find under this global threat of jihad is that's not so easy because they don't, they're not organized as a Nazi government or as a Stalinist or Soviet government. Um, they're organized across a, a billion people spread around the globe, focused in Muslim countries, but not necessarily operating through governments. And so it becomes a much more difficult task you and I have talked at great length about what to do about an Afghanistan or what's going to become of Iraq. The truth is Iraq has been going toward Iran, you know, up and down, but moving in that direction. Iran will not let Iraq become um, an absolute chaotic environment. Uh, they will reach into Iraq and do what has to be done uh, to control it and turn it into a satellite state if it isn't already. But Afghanistan is, is, going to become what we already are seeing. It's going to become a Sharia-driven sovereign, and they're going to allow Al-Qaeda and other Sunni groups to operate their jihadist groups uh, with a relative free hand. And um, that's going to require an engagement by the U.S. to protect our national security interests. How that's done is going to become the complicated part. 
Yeah, you know, it's I um when I see these, you know, these uh soldiers and marines, you know, you see them in the wounded warrior commercials giving up life, giving up limb, really giving their lives for you know, being over there in the Middle East. And it's always like, you know, and I think for most Americans, like, what are they, what are they doing there? You know, why are we losing our, you know, our, our men and women over there for what to, you know, to, to support up a, you know, another Sharia based, you know, Islamic uh, country, which can't get out of its own way. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've always questioned why are they there? Why are they there? And the more that, you know, I've been, um, you know, thinking about this, you know, there really is a, an important and serious counterterrorism mission for our military in Afghanistan, you know, and then, and, but how do you, how do you accomplish that, right? That's always, that's always the problem. I and mean, I'm, I'm not, a, I was in the Marines for 13 years and I was a major and I was a ground pounder. So I have, you know, a, a, a rudimentary understanding of, of, you know, tactics and things, but on the broader you know, political perspective, because you have to have the politics, right? Because I think when we first went into Afghanistan, quite frankly, when you compare Afghanistan to Iraq, I think there was more of a national interest in what's going on in Afghanistan with the, as the base of the terrorists than anything that was going on in Iraq. I, the Iraq thing still to this day to me is, is very troubling in the number of lives that we lost there. But Afghanistan, you know, and I think we went in there to, to, to make sure that it wasn't a safe haven for terrorists, that they could launch their attacks against our national security interests. And if that was our limited mission, you know, what is the force structure that's required to be there? Because we have, you know, we have troops deployed all over the world. We, you know, I, in the Marines, I did a, a, a they call it a UDP, a UDP, unit deployment program, where whole battalions go out to the, out to um, Okinawa. And you're there for six months, right? Because we have, you know, obviously interest in the Pacific. We have troops in the, uh, you know, in Korea with the, you know, near the DMZ. We have troops in, 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 uh, in Europe, in Germany. Now those troops now in Afghanistan is a little bit different because you, you know, you've got these constant terrorist attacks against them, and as opposed to you know in Germany and Korea and so forth, they, we have very relatively secured bases, um, short of you know war the balloon going up and you know North Korea coming across the border and so forth. But they're not going to have that constant you know IEDs and and these hit and run terrorist attacks, these suicide bombers. I mean those things are realities in the Middle East that aren't elsewhere. So there's a there's force protection that's going to be required for the forces there. But you just can't, you can't just, you know, indiscriminately bomb because, I mean, especially the territory there, there's caves, there's very, you know, it's very rugged terrain. You know, the, people have this Hollywood view of what bombing can, you know, a bomb can do on the ground, but you're well fortified in the ground in these tunnels. You're not going to, they're not going to touch you. Uh, and you need to have guys on the ground, boots on the ground to, to have eyes on, to be able to identify targets, to be able to direct and control the close air support or the missiles and the likes, not to mention, uh, you know, when you're sending these pilots over there, they either they have they can have malfunctions, you can have them, you know, they can get shot down. You have to wait, have a way to be able to bring these pilots back. Most of those prisoners that we saw, you know, in the Hanoi Hilton, so many of them were pilots that were shot down, right? Every time when we went on deployment and we launched aircraft and we were, you know, on at sea or wherever, we always had what's called a TARP, T-A-R-P, a tactical uh, was a, a tactical air and recovery patrol. It's it's a it's a, it was a, it was a mission to be able, if you had a, um, uh, if you had an aircraft go down, you wanted to re recover the, the pilot, right? The pilot needed to know that there was forces that were ready to go. If case he got shot down or he, he went to the ground, that there was going to be somebody that would come in. It, it was a tactical, what was it? Tactical recovery of trap. I'm sorry. I, I was confusing the tarp money with trap. That's why I was throwing me up. We used to call them trap missions, tactical recovery of aircraft and personnel. 
and we'd either have platoon size or company size units that would go in to recover these pilots. So the, and you look at the, the geography of Afghanistan, you know, as Marines, we're force projection ashore. We could go out to sea, we could be on aircraft carriers and part of our, 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 our task force would have aircraft carriers, we'd have amphibious ships and, and ways to project our power ashore. We would go there with everything. We had all the logistics with us. We had our combat power. You know, the Army, when they, you know, land, it takes them 30 days to bring in logistics and everything else. The Marine Corps, when we arrive, we're ready to kick doors down. The problem is Afghanistan is 300 miles from the from the coast. And, our, you know, our, even our fighter aircraft, I believe they have, you know, like I mentioned, have about 400 miles and they're going to have to refuel. It just creates so many more problems that almost requires you to have, you know, to have boots on the ground for this counterterrorism, uh, counterterrorism mission. So I, I don't know how you, I mean, I think we're gonna see a resurgence of these terrorist attacks that we saw just a few years ago before, you know, Trump snuffed out ISIS and, and snuffed out the caliphate. Because when you see, when even the you know, jihadists that are here in the United States right now, you know they are. And quite frankly, I think many of them are still pouring through the border, this porous border right now, getting prepared and getting ready. They're emboldened by seeing these types of, uh, defeats, as it were, on, on the part of the United States at the hand of these uh, of jihadists. And it just emboldens them to say, look, you know what? Yeah, Allah is in this, right? This is this is our time. And, and I would not be surprised to see uh, more attacks occurring around here in the United States because of our inability to deal with the Afghanistan problem. And I, I think there really is a national security counterterrorism mission. The problem is mission creep, right? David mentioned and you know, Clausewitz mentioned, you have to have a political, you have to have a military goal that matches what your political national strategic goals are, and you have to have the will to carry it out. We started turning Afghanistan from a counterterrorism mission of keeping terrorists from being able to find a safe haven to train and develop and launch their attacks into nation building, right to the point where we were having, you know, feminist study classes you know, for these, uh, you know, for these, I mean, talk about just the lunacy. Of, uh, of, you know, the politics of this. And that's not, you know, our troops aren't there to, you know, to do that. They're there to stop the terrorists if we need to stop the terrorists. And the other thing that bothers me too is you have so many of these Afghanis that knew they were risking their lives by helping out the Americans as translators or, you know, as, as providing human intelligence and so forth. And we're just leaving them to die now. You know, who, who wants to support uh, the American troops who we go into a foreign country now if, if we're just going to leave them behind? So it's, this is this you know exit that they've done is an absolute debacle, and you know our military. Yeah, we have a civilian-run military, appropriately so, right? I don't want to have a, a military tyrant running this country. It needs to be governed by the uh, um, you know by the the politicians, the civilians, as it were. And you got the troops out there who are doing what they're required to do and what they're asked to do. But that go-between is the generals, and I just think we have horrible generals right now. Either they're too political or they're just not smart and they can't figure this out. Um, but I, this, this is, a, um, this is a, a debacle. And I think it's, you know, we're not going to see or hear the last of it um, just over the next upcoming days about this exodus, because it's going to have long-term, I believe, national security implications, because now the terrorists are going to have a safe haven once again to launch attacks against the U.S. interests. Yeah, and it, look, it, mentioning the generals and, the fact is, is that um, the generals who reach the level of four and five stars, as you know, and go into the Pentagon, um, these are political animals. These are less military animals than they are political because they wouldn't have been able to go through the ranks without 
upsetting people and and you know becoming um, the favorites of the politicians who promote them uh, without that. And you know you when there's no question that that in my mind at least that the negotiations even by the Trump administration and Obama before him with the Taliban was wrong. Um, uh, I don't believe Trump would have made the the kind of mistakes, and I think he would have corrected them that um, Biden is now making and not correcting. But what I don't like is when um, the retired generals, and especially David Petraeus, right, this this pig of a man, um, you know, unfaithful, uh, committed just one felony after another with top secret information, got away with it, um, disgraced, had to re, you know, resign from the CIA. Um, but he's criticizing Biden and talking about um, other alternatives. This is the man who engaged in so-called counterinsurgency in, in Iraq, claiming great victory, or that he was going to, when he was in Afghanistan, that he was turning things around. Counterinsurgency is simply a another approach to nation building, where you think that you're somehow going to gain the, the respect and the assistance of the local populations and change the facts on the ground. You might do so while you're there and you might you know, get support and, and make alliances with some of the tribal leaders while you're sitting with full force support in that little town, Mosul, or wherever it may be. But the moment you leave, if you deny the reality of a Sharia-grounded-based society, you're ignoring the doctrine of know your enemy. And he did blindly. And that's why Iraq is a mess today. Counterinsurgency accomplished nothing. And when we blamed Obama for leaving early, sure, he abandoned just like Biden is now doing. But the status quo was not going to fix anything except lose soldiers, human lives of ours at great cost. Um, that's not the answer either. Maintaining the status quo of what we were doing in Iraq or in Afghanistan certainly was not the right answer, but not addressing the problem and either saying this was Biden's answer to us. Well, I had two alternatives. I could have stayed the course. In fact, um, what I would have had to have done is go back to the full-scale war and engage the Taliban at every turn and engage in counterinsurgency and all this other nonsense. Or I had to follow Trump's lead and take the troops out according to the agreement, which of course he didn't do exactly. It was supposed to be in May and he took until now. But, the, but those aren't the two alternatives. He wasn't locked into putting in another, you know, 500,000 troops uh, in, in a war that um, should not be fought in a way that is not going to win an objective and get it done or protect our national security interest long term. Anyway, that's what I have to say on this subject. Yeah, what's your um, what's your take? Do you think uh, we're going to see an increase in, in terrorist attacks here in the in the short term? Both not not only our national interests overseas, like embassies and ships that might be pulling into foreign ports, but also here on the homeland. 
Well, there's look, there's no question. First of all, um, the Taliban, as we're already seeing today, are going to impose their Sharia will on the Afghanistan people. They're going to create their little fiefdoms, right? They're not monolithic either. And this very tribal people. So you talk about the Taliban, it's not just one Taliban leader. There's all sorts of power structures. They will work to, um, to control that as best they can, to bring it, coalesce it, to bring it to bear, um, create economic power through the opium trade and other aspects. Um, and then they will begin working with the more globalistic jihadist groups, Al-Qaeda and others that will be formed. Al-Qaeda, and whether it's called Al-Qaeda or something else, is almost meaningless. It will be many Sunni groups because Afghanistan is predominantly Sunni based, um, is going to be many Sunni groups that are going to form an attempt to engage first in the Middle East and then in Europe and then across the oceans here. Um, and by the way, keep in mind that we have imported many, many Iraqis and Afghanistans over the years. And some of these were legitimate um, individuals who helped our effort and deserved to be here. But keep in mind that even among those, there's a second and third generation forming. And these young people know they're Muslims. They go off to college and they link up with Muslim Brotherhood groups and they're engaged in the Sharia doctrine. And that's an ongoing cycle. We see it in the prisons. We see it at the colleges. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood is very good about radicalizing Muslims who haven't engaged Sharia, um, but they will. And that's going to be the ongoing threat. So the, the short answer to your question is absolutely, it's almost a given. Um, and um, how we respond to that threat will be, I think, the telling moment. But I don't see us responding, at least as to the threat in Afghanistan, in any serious way. Biden talked about diplomacy and speaking out for the women and engaging in, in you know, diplomacy and what have you. That didn't work before 9-11. Why did they just announce that they, they uh, I don't know if they got some sort of resolution or something at the UN or whatever, but they're talking about how demanding that, uh, you know, the new Afghan regime have an inclusive government. <laughs> that, you know, it's just these, these, they're, they're idiots. I don't know how else to describe it. You think that Talmud's like, oh yeah, okay, sure. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we'll have it. We'll have an inclusive. We'll make sure everyone is a Sharia adherent man because that uh, is as inclusive as it's going to get um, under Sharia law. One, one, just one last thing. What about uh, the role of Iran in all this? Well, Iran certainly loves instability, right? And um, while they are Shia Muslims and not close to the Taliban, um, the fact is, is if you look at a map of Afghanistan, Who's on the border? You know, you've got Iran, you have Pakistan, and then you have the um, Uzbekistans, right? There's like two or three of those um, newly formed republics from the Soviet Union. Um, and Iran will utilize the instability 
created in Afghanistan. Um, and by the way, it, you know, the, the so-called experts used to say, well, we don't have to worry about um, Iran um, supporting Hamas because Hamas is a Sunni group. Iran is a Shia. They hate each other. They kill each other. Yes, they do. But Iran is not stupid. And they hate the U.S. and Israel far more than they hate the Sunnis. And Iran has long supported not just the Hezbollah, the Shia groups in Lebanon, Hamas in its war against Israel. So Iran will most definitely engage with Afghanistan's various groups, you know, covertly and support that instability because that instability works to their advantage in Iraq because the most important thing Iran wants is to control Iraq and then from Iraq to reach out and create instability in the Arabian Peninsula because their next biggest enemy is Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's our, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's our uh, walk down uh, national strategy, Sharia, uh, Middle East and all that. But uh, it's, it's, I guess the, uh, we'll wait and see how this all, all unfolds. Unfortunately, I think we have a, a general idea of how it's going to uh, unfold and it's not, and it's not looking good for our, national security interests. Well, that's, that is all the time that we, uh, that we have today. And as always, we look forward to our next discussion. We thank all of you for joining us. Again, program reminder, we will not likely have uh, shows over the next uh, couple of weeks as I will be away. Um, and as you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels and our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher. If you like the content, please follow us and please spread the word. Um, also, again, as a nonprofit public interest law firm, we're recognized by the IRS as a 501c3. And all the legal work we do that we you know, discuss during these podcasts, and you can see on our website, uh, we do it pro bono for the good. That is, we don't charge for our legal services. Rather, we rely on generous donations from uh, people like you. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so safely on our website, AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. All donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, We thank you again, and may God bless you, and may he continue to bless America. Amen, and have a good vacation, Rob. Enjoy the family.